Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky, and we're talking about books, about theater, about film, about television, and from time to time, even about KPFA, Pacifica Radio. One of the finest pieces of reportage to be published in 2015 was Ghetto Side, A True Story of Murder in America by Jill Leovi. As an embedded reporter for the LA Times, Leovi followed several murder cases inside the Los Angeles Police Department involving African-American victims. The result is a compelling indictment of racism in America, and in particular, institutional racism. This interview was recorded in the KPFA studios on February 10, 2015, and aired on KPFA in two parts, on Arts Waves and Book Waves, and was extensively edited for syndication. My guest is Julie Yovi, whose book is titled Ghetto Side, A True Story of Murder in America. Julie Yovi is a reporter for the Los Angeles Times. This book grew out of her work in Watts and South Central. This book was finished, I guess, and in galleys when a lot of the story of Black Lives Matter came to the fore, particularly... Uh, what happened in Ferguson and what happened in Staten Island, though when you were writing it, the Trayvon Martin story happened. Uh, do you think that these incidents can or will change some of what you discuss in Ghetto Side? I don't know. I, I think one of the things about these police controversies that strikes me is how we keep going over the same thing. And you can go back years and years, decades and decades. I went through a lot of newspaper archives from the 40s, 50s, and 60s for this book. And you can see these police controversies erupting in the same way and people quite literally using the exact same words and saying the same things 30, 40 years ago that are said today when there's a controversial incident of police force. It almost, to me, feels like a skipping record if I could use a dated metaphor, of just going back over the same ground. And that uh, commands my attention. Why is this so immobile? Much has changed. You know, much has happened in the last 30 years uh, with uh, all aspects of this. And yet we're still kind of repeating the same template for these controversies. Your goal in writing this was more about the broader story, which is about race and the relationship between the African-American community specifically and the cops, focusing in on L.A., but what's happening in L.A. is happening in Ferguson, New York, and many other places. In that sense, we'll talk first about some generalized areas. Then I do want to get into some of the specifics that you reported on. So let's start by going back to you. Now, you for 10 years covered this area, right? Yes, I would say on and off for 10 years. I first uh, started doing the police speed at the Los Angeles Times in about 2001. I covered some of the machinations and the political machinations around the police department and the leadership and kind of gravitated into crime reporting in South LA. Did my first embed maybe in 2000. 
three or four, I'm going to say. When you talk about an embed, specifically, what do you mean? I actually had a desk in, in 77th Street Station, I think, in 2002, and that was somewhat fruitful. Then I moved over to the nearby Watts Station, where I was actually in the homicide unit there, shadowing the detectives through their daily work, which is the way I came to prefer to work. It's hard to do both at the same time. You're kind of out in the community doing that kind of reporting, or you're shadowing police officers. If you mix that up too much, it can lead to problems because uh, people won't talk to you if they see you're hanging around the police too much. And that would be the uniformed or both uniformed and detectives? Both the uniformed and detectives. is a really different quality of conversation if I was somehow associated with the cops or I'd first visited the home in company of the cops than if I just approached on my own knocking on the door. So in Ghetto Side, there's a lot of scenes that are set, a lot of interviews. Were you there at those scenes or were you talking to the cops or the people being interviewed afterward? A lot of it, I, I was there. Okay. Um, I put, I really, not all of it, but I really do put a premium on firsthand experience in, for this story in particular, because there's just so many veils of misunderstanding. You really have to thrust those aside and get to what's concrete. What did I see with my own eyes and hear with my own ears? Well, let, let's talk a little about the some of the broader issues, and then we'll get to those specifics. You talk in Ghetto Side, Juliova, you talk about the difference between over-policing and under-policing. And by over-policing, we are specifically talking about driving while black, stop and frisk, arresting people after searching them when there's really no need to search them, versus under-policing, which is not solving homicides. Yeah. And another way to look at it would be the hard and expensive stuff versus the cheap and easy, low-hanging fruit. It's relatively cheap to stop and search somebody. It's very difficult to uh, successfully complete a homicide investigation and submit it for charges. Now, that's called preventive policing, right? The stop and frisk. Well, I mean, I think it's loosely called that. It's justified under the banner of prevention, which is an idea that I find to be ubiquitous both within police departments and in policy circles and in the public. People want the police to prevent crime, and we've talked about crime in that manner for a long time now. And I think it's, it may not be explicit, but it is the uh, implicit notion behind quite a bit of what pat- patrol officers are doing is the idea that they're going to prevent crime by doing this. Well, you said in an interview, preventive policing assumes the source of the problem is the individual when in fact, I guess it's endemic to the society or at least to the area. Yeah, I can't remember exactly what I said there. I think that was an incomplete and poorly expressed. The mistake is not realizing that high homicide rates are rising out of a whole set of conditions that are implicated in helping create and maintain that high homicide rate. And so one of the false turns I think we take is to assume that a homicide investigation, which can be seen as sort of cleanup work after the fact, after the egg has already been broken, after the bad things have already happened, well, what good is that? Maybe it's necessary. It's sort of this obligatory step, but what good does it really do in terms of prevention? Instead of understanding that when you hold people accountable, when justice works in the best and most expensive way, and in, in a way that most people can get behind, 
which is, I, I think, is a rare person who doesn't believe that a person who is guilty of murder should be prosecuted and held accountable for that crime, that that doesn't have a important and material effect in the world in terms of building law and building the legitimacy of the state and giving our whole legal apparatus a foundation of justice that it needs to to function on all levels because if the police and the criminal justice system don't have that legitimacy, really all is lost. You cannot watch everybody all the time. What you want is to build conditions of lawfulness, and that will protect more people eventually. Well, it seems in, uh, in, in a subtext in the book, because you don't really talk about it, is that the difference between the plainclothes detectives, let's say, and the uniformed cops, and they don't necessarily get along, is the uniformed cops seem to regard, say, South Central as a zone that's occupied like Baghdad. You know, I actually have sympathy for a lot of the patrol officers. That's a very hard job. Uh, they aren't being given a lot of information. And, and actually, I take their part in some sense because they are seeing things with their own eyes and dealing with them every day that that they go out in the world and they realize society isn't talking about this. Even their own leadership isn't talking about this. And I talk about that in my that in my book, officers who are not racist saying, I don't know what to make of this. I work in this neighborhood, and what I see every day is black men shooting black men, and I just can't even get my mind around it. I can't fit it into any larger rubric of understanding, and nobody is talking about it. In fact, uh, I have a sense that people are even denying it's t taking place. What am I to make of this? And, and remember that many of these officers are quite young. And, you know, are coming from uh, other backgrounds where they're not really prepared to see this. They draw their own conclusions. It's, it's quite unhealthy, I think, actually, to leave them alone with this and can become defensive. They can, it can lead to counterproductive conclusions or it just leads to what I see in the face is a lot of officers' bafflement. Like, what the heck is this? Well, it also leads, as you say, to rudeness, which doesn't help any of them, anyone. Rudeness is hugely important. I would actually put it at the top of the list. I think that that's um, extremely important. You know, people do need to realize in high crime neighborhoods, police are being assaulted more. All the things that are affecting the crime rates across the board also bring police into it. They are much more likely to be shot at. They are much more likely to be attacked. There's reasons why uh, they are more on guard. Uh, and why, you know, policing becomes very different in that environment. My first ride-along ever, way, way back then, when, 13 or 14 years ago, we took a bottle smashed on the windshield in Nickerson Gardens driving through one night. When I was in 77th, I mean, officers would fairly regularly come back from their shifts with black eyes or torn uniforms or, or roughed up. It is not easy for anybody to face the possibility of physical violence, and that is part of a police officer's psychology. One of the things I talk about in the book is this is a very complex problem. Everybody has a different piece of the elephant that they're looking at. The perspective of homicide detectives is tangibly different. You just feel it in their whole mien than patrol officers. And actually, I think paramedics and some other people I've met, they, 
people who have these glancing jobs where it's just so much misery and a parade throughout the day and you can't necessarily fix it. You're called into these heinous situations, you know, and you can't make much of a difference. You you do need defenses to protect yourself. The, the homicide detectives tend to have long-term relationships and family intimate relationships with especially families, and that affects their outlook towards everything, and it's really noticeable. There's also the fact that somebody walks in and they have a uniform it will get a reaction to a point where when the detectives in ghetto side are forced to wear uniforms because of, I guess, cutbacks, they object because they know that just by simply wearing the uniforms, they're going to screw up those relationships. Well, that people are less likely to talk to them wearing yeah. a uniform. Of course, they put in uniform uh, as a modified tactical alert to to have more police presence on the street, and that's the goal of the leadership in that situation. And of course, that's totally the preventive uh, motive that I'm talking about, the idea that just uh, – a, a uniformed officer visible on the street is going to prevent crime. Uh, sergeant once joked to me that um, that it was this scarecrow notion of policing, that if you took blue uniforms and you filled them with straw and you just put them on every street corner, that you would have less crime. In Ghetto Side, you talk about black men versus black men, killing black men, and you talk about high percentages. What are we talking about here? If you go back really into the early part of the 20th century, then the n- counting gets really dicey as you go back. But it's it's probably at least six or seven times white rates going all the way back. And that includes the 50s. That includes the 60s. That includes periods before crack cocaine and everything. Now, I, I think about six times the white rate, it translates to about 40 percent of American homicide victims are black men or boys. And uh, of course, they're, you know, maybe six, seven percent of the population. So it's it, pretty much any way you cut the numbers, you see this outsized and remarkable and singular problem where uh, black people are victimized much more than anybody else. They are it's easy to say, and others have said it before me, they are our number one crime victims and the people who most need protection in this society. And it's not poverty because there are other poor groups, that, including Hispanics, that don't have those kind of rights. There, there is an interaction, I think, between poverty and a homicide, but it's complex, and it, it doesn't necessarily line up. There are very poor countries in the world with very low homicide rates. A lot of countries in the Arab world are extremely poor and yet have low homicide rates. Uh, and I have a lot of unemployed males, by the way. You see in the U.S., for example, new immigrants will sometimes have lower homicide rates than the second generation of immigrants. You see in American history that homicide, there's some debate about this, but homicide fell during the Depression, which is very interesting. And, I, and to me, it actually makes intuitive sense because the homicide is about stakes, and if nobody has anything the stakes are lower than if there's some very lucrative asset that's injected into the situation, like crack cocaine. So blacks and Latinos in L.A. actually have similar median incomes on paper uh, by household, but very different homicide death rates. I don't want to go too far afield, but this goes back to the lives of 
the African-Americans in L.A., their grandparents' lives, say, in Alabama or Louisiana. Their grandparents, and, and maybe not their grandparents. Our, our migration was quite recent from the South, so you actually meet a lot of people who were born in Louisiana and East Texas and Oklahoma and you work in the streets of L.A. This is actually, we're one generation out from that, and, and many of them, by the way, with some kind of sharecropping in their backgrounds, so very, very disadvantaged blacks coming from the South. What I assert in the book is that when, going back to this idea, Richard, of building law, that if, if you take a global view and historical view of that, it takes a long time. England was once a country with a lot more homicides. It takes a long time for the, the establishment of the common law and sort of the building of these institutions and the building of what Max Weber called the monopoly on violence. And that if you look at the case of American blacks, there's really no point in that history where that could possibly have happened. It certainly wasn't going to happen in the South under Jim Crow because, in fact, there you have the case of a system where everything is working against any possible assemblage of a, a state monopoly on violence. This is a, a situation of, of factional competition, of of dispute over legitimacy on, on every level. Uh, at the same time, you have dominating factions, using law enforcement as a tool of oppression, specifically against blacks. They're on the, they're on the wrong end of everything in that system. And then you have, you know, the industrial cities of the North. You have Chicago in the 50s and 40s, and you have L.A. in the 60s and 70s when uh, – you, you remember the 70s. It was a rough time. Law enforcement was really overwhelmed in cities, and we, we actually didn't have, we didn't have it set up. We never really had a really good investigative tradition to begin with, and these very, very large black inner cities formed, and they quickly became very lawless. It was never going to happen during those periods, and we, you know, ricocheted from that era of leniency to the era, current era of you know, long prison sentence and, and, and judicial harshness. And it wasn't going to happen then either. And the consistent thread through all of that is, you know, you see all these references in the Southern sources to people turning their backs on black and black violence. And you see in the contemporary sources a sort of a societal turning of, of backs in terms of the press ignoring the crimes and and, and little pressure for an institutional response. So. And that's where you, you came in with your homicide blog because a lot of these things were not being reported and if nobody knows about them, then nothing can happen. Yes. I mean, I think this is a very uh, difficult and sensitive issue for Americans of all colors. People talk about the homicide report, which is the blog where I just listed every homicide as being interesting because of the list. But don't forget, I think maybe the main thing about it is I also listed the race of every victim. And the reason I did that is that I was tired of homicide being talked about in some other way besides this eye of the storm. The people who really, really were at the center of it always seemed to be pushed to the side, which is adult black males. And so I wanted people to see that. I did get some criticism for listing the race of homicide victims. But I guess... Uh, the alternative is ignoring the people who are suffering the most and losing the most. And that becomes a very tricky thing. It's on some level the difference between saying, well, 10 people were killed last week. And then as you do in Ghetto Side, Julie Ovi, as you do, 
You have one sentence per person at one point saying this person was killed this day and this person was such and such. This person was killed this day and suddenly they're people. That's really not enough. I guarantee you if you were to go into those cases that each one of them would be as interesting as the ones that I actually end up featuring at length in the book. That was one of my problems in writing the book was disciplining myself to focus on a few cases because they're all Tolstoyan. They're all amazing. The ones you discuss are very powerful and each one is different in its own way and yet when we look at the entire picture, the tears start to come. I understood books I'd read in college that went by me, my youthful mind, uh, without significance. I understood them better. All this sort of black humor, war literature, uh, Catch-22, Kurt Vonnegut, they all made sense to me when I started covering this because they're all about irony and they're all about paradoxes. And this is a world that's just riddled with paradoxes. And one of them is this, that when you're close up to, I mean, murder is is immense. It is just an immense happening in the world. Strange, but I've heard police officers say this too, that you can almost feel the metaphysical weight of it when you're close to murder. It's so horrifying for a human being to be killed by another human being. And yet, if you move just one inch away from it, you know, it just recedes so suddenly into nothing, to just a number on paper. And suddenly that story that was so compelling when you were there in the family's home when they were mourning the victim becomes a brief in the next day's paper. And it's, it's hard to bridge those two worlds. When I was a teenager back in the 60s or when I was in my 20s in the 70s, I had a couple of friends who were busted, white. They're around today, the lawyers... And yet, if they had been black, they would have been in prison. Yeah, you know, Eric Monkinen, who was a historian at UCLA who studied homicide a lot and who I quote a lot in my book, I actually knew him when he was alive. He was very influential for me. He talks about how weak systems have to be harsher. The king who barely has control of his kingdom has to lop off heads in order to maintain that control, but that systems that are not inherently weak can actually be more lenient. It's interesting today to see prison sentences in these very safe European democracies tend to be much lighter than what, what we have in the U.S., and I think that is partly another of these paradoxes, that it's actually the weakness of our system that underlies some of its the harshness that we see in, in long prison sentences and charging every single piece of the crime separately as a separate charge and all those things that have contributed to the current problem. It creates an underclass. I mean, what we're looking at basically in this community is an underclass, and it even veers up into the middle classes when middle-class people need to sit down and explain you're an African-American. If a cop stops you, this is what you do if you don't want to get killed. I mean, nobody would have had to explain it to a white person. You know, that situation of being stopped by a police officer, I had a white uh, police officer acquaintance said to me after the book was published, he says, you know, actually, I do talk to my white kids about what to do when being stopped by police. That's not a, a radical thought. Given the history here, uh, and it's a supercharged history, you know, I'm always talking about history because I think that that really is what makes uh, the situation of blacks so singular. It's fairly recent. You see even in the L.A. Times 
archives. Even through the 70s, there was lots of evidence that there was this discretionary violence being meted out by police officers. I do think it's changed. But when it's you know, accepted folks' wisdom throughout a community as it is through South LA that you always have to have show your hands, which is not a bad idea, or that you drive to a lighted place before, you know, you stop for that siren behind you. It's something that has to be dealt with. Everyone should be talking about it. It should be an open conversation. It's This is a bit of a side issue, but uh, there's been a lot of talk of transparency in police departments. I just find them less transparent all the time. And one of the important things is you just want to hear from officers. You want people to talk really openly. This is what I'm thinking when I pull up behind a car. This is what I'm thinking when you do this. Uh, and people need to talk about their experiences with police. So this is how it felt to me when you said this. The, these situations are, are rife with misunderstandings, and they're very dangerous misunderstandings. Let's talk a little more about the specifics of the cases. One of the issues that uh, Skaggs, who is more or less the protagonist of the book, Detective Skaggs, is he's dealing with a constant shortage of funds. And this is a problem that is specific to these stories, yet, of course, it's a bigger problem that money is not being put into homicide, cutting back on overtime, having to share desks. There's not enough paper clips. I mean, how do you perform your job when the people above you aren't giving you the money to do it. That, of course, all reflects, you can, you can talk about the leadership of the police department, but we have decades and decades of the public demanding uniforms, of the public demanding preventive policing and saying that this is what we want for, and very little discussion of investigations and sort of building up that investigative function. So what the police leaders are doing is a reflection of the political priorities that they've been given. In Skank's case, it's interesting, and it, actually I've talked to him and his colleagues about this. In a way, it was a motivator for them. It gave them this esprit de corps that it was them against the world. His longtime supervisor, Sal Barberis, who's in the book, is actually very sophisticated. He said, as a manager, you've got to be really careful with that because when there's this us against the world, esprit de corps in a police unit, there's always a corruption potential that goes along with that. And he would, was very careful about that. But but in a positive way, I think, for John Skaggs, he liked the fact that he was working harder than anybody else and tended to be somebody who thought highly of himself in any situation. The fact that others, you know, didn't see why he was so important in a way enhanced it for him. And uh, that that's an interesting irony, I think, of the book. Was it ever pointed out to him that the uh, Republicans he votes for are the ones who, who want to do the cutback in funding? You know, I actually think that that's very complicated because I think on the far right and the far left, there's actually more convergence than one might assume. And this is how it works. There's a contingent on the far right who wants the basis of all of these questions to be moral and wants to look at moral failings as the reason for violence. There's a contingent on the far left that really will not accept that bureaucratic criminal justice has a role in any solution at all. And both of them end up neglecting 
what I think is the importance of policing at the end of the day. So one of the reasons that I bring up people's political parties in the book, and of course, Watts is fascinating because the black people who live in, in Watts, I think it's fair to say, are overwhelmingly Democrats and sometimes quite far left. In fact, I think Joan Didion wrote about Marxists in Watts way back when, and you still find a little bit of that in, in the community. And then the police, of course, tend to be Republicans, many of them quite moderate. I mean, this is California, Angelinos. But so many aspects of this story uh, transcend partisanship because they really are so unexamined that they're not part of anybody's partisan agenda. I I talk a lot about the importance of vigorous investigations. And I'm not sure that that's a platform plank on either side. It's just a story about what our government does and how it should be doing it. Well, Tonelli himself, Detective Tonelli, mm-hmm. whose son was murdered and forms the basis of the specific, one of the two specific murder stories here. Did you ever talk to him about some of these issues? Would he talk about them well, as a black living in South Central? Well, Tonelli is a Republican. He's, he bleeds really? blue. He's a cop. And it, it was in his family. is very, very charming. Most of the family is Democrats. And they uh, said that they... Uh, that it was great for banter over the dinner table, that they go back and forth in that family quite a bit. Wally Tonelli is like many cops. But in terms of these issues, he's an experienced homicide detective. I just don't think it's left or right. It's about sort of the practical difficulties of solving crimes in high-crime communities. It's a, it's almost a technical question, and, and uh, Wally Tonelli is a, a first-class technician and is very, very thoughtful on those technical issues. He, uh, I can't remember whether this stayed in the book or not, but he said he once went to a community group and he talked about the French underground. And he said, you know, people are afraid to come forward as witnesses, but we in the police force want to work with you. We want to connect with the outraged underground in this community because we know that you don't want the murders either. And how can we get that conversation going? The metaphor would be the occupiers are the people who are killing people. And I thought it was a great way to approach it. And he said that the problem was that the French resistance he was talking about during World War II they could understand what he was talking about, that they didn't know that history as well as he did. The occupying army thing, again, this is something that goes back decades and decades and decades. And uh, we have been through many waves of thoroughgoing reform and, by the way, spent millions and millions and millions of dollars in taxpayer money to make changes. And at some point, I think you have to stop and say, really, is this really exactly the same story? Is there any way we can come at it in a new way? It's not to discount the many problems that are still out there and that the, uh, the legitimate fear and vulnerability that people often feel toward the police in their neighborhoods. But we've got to start talking about this in new ways. It's, uh, it's calcified. Well, when you've got, as you know, Tonelli would say, the occupying army or the gangs— and then I immediately interpret it as the occupying army is the police, and both interpretations in their own way are correct. You've got a real problem. And recall that uh, Wally Tonelli is a black man who was living in the middle of the highest crime division or precinct of the right. LAPD by choice and who lost his son to homicide. So he's not somebody who's coming from the outside and looking at this community's problems as an outsider. But what I'm saying here is that when you have this problem, because I'm sure that Tonelli's family might view it more the other side or his neighbors, 
that you've got a situation where you've got a white occupying army and a black occupying army. And then in the middle of that are young boys trying to go to school. And again, this goes along the line with changes. We've had a consent decrees and mandated diversity. The police force in L.A. is actually relative to the population, overrepresented in terms of blacks. There's more greater proportion of blacks on the police force than there are in the population. And uh, I think at parity with Latinos, and particularly in South L.A., really the uh, what would be the cognate of the stereotypic Irish cop in New York is a Mexican-American police officer in Los Angeles. That is our city. I would say that this is complicated. I mean, for the people who suffer most from crime, and I think there are lots of different perspectives on this, but for very poor people who don't have a lot of options, who aren't very mobile, who are living in these inner-city neighborhoods, the line from them is often more nuanced than just the police are oppressors. If you're really listening to what they're saying, and I think other people experience this differently, particularly if you if you are living in a very mixed community and, and your main point of contact with these issues is the profiling issue and being stopped in traffic stops. But if you are living in a place where you're calling police every week and you've lost a son to homicide and you are in the center of crimes and your block, so maybe you're in a gang and your fellow gang members assault you or whatever it is, that it's more of a complaint that they're oppressive and yet I also want them to protect me. I need more of their protection and I'm frustrated with the inadequacy of protection at the same time that I don't like you know, the way he talked to me when he stopped me. And so it's, it's, a, it's a bit different than the, the standard line that you hear. And that, that part of it, the I want more protection part, is the part that my book is about and that we don't talk about it as much. Well, what you, what you kind of say in Ghetto Side, Giulioli, what you kind of say is that if, in fact, we start putting more emphasis on catching killers, on catching people who commit assaults, if the emphasis changes and the community begins to realize that, in fact, you know, having a lawless society without cops is going to be worse than a situation where the cops are not your enemy, then maybe we can move in the right direction. More than anybody, people who are in the eye of the storm here, they don't want murderers to get away with it. They're outraged when murderers get away with it. This is a terrible thing. It's something that impacts their daily lives. Uh, I did a project with my colleague Doug Smith at the LA Times in the early 2000s where we looked at uh, more than a dozen years of homicide, and we came up with the figure that there were 40 unsolved homicides per square mile throughout the length and breadth of South LA. And imagine what that means when people are not very mobile. They're staying in the same neighborhoods. You know that killer is living down the block and nothing's ever going to happen to him. You have to send your kids to school anyway. In a very visceral way, people in these neighborhoods want the serious crime solved, I think, overwhelmingly. That comes back to Black Lives Matter. Whenever you're talking about state power of any kind, the power to arrest and imprison people is the ultimate state power. You've got to be very, very careful. And I've thought about this a lot. I've thought, you know, what am I really saying about the power of the state here? But I think that when you argue, as I do, for 
an orientation of the system, not towards sweeps, not towards stopping as many as we can and finding out which possess something that they might do something with in the future, but actually individuals, their acts, what have they done in our real temporal world and what suffering have they inflicted? And categorize crime that way, it both limits and focuses the system on what it actually ought to focus on. And it it orients everything towards what individuals have done in the world, which is a kind of prophylactic against profiling, really, because it's about the essential thing in our constitutional democracy, which is judging people by their actions and not by anything else, not by the neighborhood they were living in, not by what profile they match, but by what we can say were their actions in the world, and that there's tremendous power in that, and that if it were evenly applied, there would be consequences from that that are broader than simply putting a lot of killers in prison. Well, we can see it in other parts of society where, where we know what the stakes are if we commit a crime. And actually, there are studies that have shown that. We, that one of the things that's happened in this year is you have the very severe punishments and very long prison sentences, which, by the way, I don't think are necessarily inappropriate for murder because murder is a very high crime, that actually it's not the length of the sentence. It's the swiftness and certainty of being caught that actually works more as a deterrent. You quote someone who's saying, it might have even been Tonelli, I don't care what kind of sentence Starks and Davis get, but they've been caught. And they will get sentences. Yes. And that's what's and, important. And, and catching people is very important. And by the way, when we talk about this sort of history going back to the South, with all the changes that have happened, even with vast changes in the unit imprisonment per crime that we've seen, not catching people, the likelihood of catching people hasn't changed a whole lot. It's been pretty consistent throughout. So it would fit with this correlating factor that we see throughout, which is high black homicide rates. Julie Ovi, I'd like to ask about some material that's not in the book that you might have picked up along the way. And this is something that, you know, I see. Maybe you can disagree with me. But it seems that frequently when the media talks about a a white killer, uh, that person's mentally ill. When they talk about a black killer, sometimes they say, oh, that person fulfills a stereotype. White homicide, while it is uh, not as low as in some of the safer nations in the world like Europe, Western Europe, is so low at this point in history that the mix of homicides that you see in white America is quite different than what you would see in the uh, classic black inner city. And it, it is actually a higher portion of domestic violence and maybe kind of outlying murders. What's so striking about to me, about what's called gang violence, I don't love the term, but uh, is how many very, very normal and rational people are pulled into it in one way or another, even even pulled into kind of silent complicity, unwillingly sometimes. You know, they don't like what having to stay silent, but they feel like they have to. I don't believe that mass pathology is what's causing that. You also don't talk particularly about macho behavior in terms of this or homophobia or gender. I mean, does that play a role? Because these are all men. I mean, how much of this 
has to do with ideas about male versus female? You know, uh, I, I quote an anthropologist in my book, and this was such a powerful thing for me to go into studies of other contexts and see uh, this particular study, for example, that I'm going to cite to you. It was um, uh, agricultural ranching, cattle ranching, traditional Mayan culture in southern Mexico. And she studied this very high homicide rate that this group had. Of course, they were completely alienated from the state. And if you went down the list of homicides, it was like stole a cow, stole it back, got mixed up with somebody else's girlfriend. Three weeks later, they saw each other at a gathering. It was absolute. You trade out the word cattle for stereo used car or drugs. And it was exactly the list of homicides that you would see in, uh, in South L.A. And one of the things she says in this study, she says the role of women is really interesting that women kind of rev up men to commit homicide for for motives that sometimes have to do with more what women want than men. They use the men. And I've actually seen that in South L.A. too. There was a, uh, and and I'm sorry, I can't remember if this was a, a near fatal assault or a fatal assault, but the situation was he spurns her. And she goes to her brother and his friends in the gang and says, can you take revenge on my lover who spurned me for another woman? It was this ancient, classic homicide motive. But it, it looks on paper, it looks like a gang right. shooting. But that's sort of what behind it. So I don't think that the women are so out of it as you think. And in fact, if you read Ghetto Side, a number of oh, the fights oh, yeah. in the book begin with female trouble and women. There is a reason why uh, 18 to 24-year-old men are so conspicuous in this problem. What is different about them? You're a man, tell me, but they are bigger and stronger than everybody else. By proxy, they are our fighters in society, in every society since the beginning of the world. I don't know exactly how this works. I think men do size each other up. But I think that the 28-year-old fears the 25-year-old a bit, you know, and I think that. Well, that's very primal. <laughs> but no, it's it's fact. It's fact. These are the strongest people, so it falls to them to do the fighting. But really, it's not something wrong with them. It's just that that's how conflict works. It tends to focus and come to the fore in this fighting group who fight most effectively. And I actually would add to that, in talking to a lot of men who are involved with this in this age group, I think a lot of guys don't like fighting. And I hear a lot of, you know, I was in the club and I heard what you're looking at and my heart sank because I like just don't even want to deal with it. A lot of men really aren't into fighting and they're not even into the weird group thing. My experience of talking to men on the street was very much like, you know, I think a lot of men tend to have one or two really close best friends and that when they're in a car with five other guys, it's actually kind of stressful. And they might not really like all the other guys in the car. And finally, that a lot of reluctant conscripts. Really, I learned, especially with gangs, that you have to stand there for a long time. Because if they're all there in a group, they'll say something. But when the others start to peel off and you finally get the last couple alone, they will say something very different, like, I'm sick of this. I will always fire at the ground. I don't know how else to deal with the pressure I'm under. In a sense, I don't want to say it's a defense, but that's Devin Davis's defense for shooting well, Brian he, Tonelli he, he is claims that, to have come under a lot of peer pressure. Yeah. That's right. I think that part of what Gettysburg shows that it, once it's a fait accompli and a killing has taken place, it doesn't really matter. That killing has so much effect in the world that you must, you must do something. You must hold that killer accountable. It's important to have a trial. 
it's important to have a rest. It's important to have that public conversation about what we think mm-hmm. happened here. When you've talked to these various murderers, because you had discussions with Derek Starks, the older man in the car, who is quite a talker, I mean, one minute, reading, even reading his transcripts, it's, oh, this guy is full of it. Or the younger one, uh, Davis, who jumps out of the car and does the actual shooting, apparently there's a third person who was dead by the time all this has happened in the car. And then, of course, there's the woman. Well, yeah, and we don't know. There's always, of course, uh, yeah. unanswered questions with yeah, these but, cases. But, but it seems as if they're all going afterward, you know, we shouldn't have done this. I think particularly in Derek Stark's case, it goes to what I'm talking about. These these are not wild-eyed, fringe people. I mean, they're, they're many of the people, not all of them, but I think a lot of the people who are arrested for homicide in South L.A. are quite relatable, are quite sort of in a, a band of people who in in another walk of life might have turned out not to be very involved with violence. That was maybe a little more true, and in, in, in this is just a glancing impression uh, for Derek than Davis. Of course, you can't tell, and this is something that sometimes bothers me about journalism in this area. You see a lot of stories that sort of like this person really seemed like they were telling the truth as opposed to others who seem like they're lying. Well, I, you can't tell who's lying and who's telling the truth. That's why we need trials. That's why we need homicide investigations. And and as I say in my book, sometimes the people who seem to be lying will fool you because it turns out that they're telling the truth. Do you think stricter gun laws would help, or is that just a side issue? Well, we have relatively strict gun laws in California already. This is California. Uh, It's not really on my radar because in the world I deal with, I've almost never seen a homicide in South LA that involved a legal gun. They're all illegal guns. These are all guns that have already been pushed underground. Right, and the gun that was responsible for Brian's death was a very old gun. They last a long time. They are made of steel. They don't just melt away. And uh, there's been a huge number of guns in in circulation in LA and in America for so long that it doesn't seem very likely that that uh, inventory would disappear in the near future. The title ghetto side, that's what people there call it? You know, it's not in wide use. Uh, I I had heard it and, and it reached the detectives. One of the interesting things for me, when you're working as a reporter in L.A. and I'd covered education and some other issues, you deal with a lot of Spanish speakers and uh, one of the nice things I remember when I first got on this beat, and I was really sort of drilling down into the black homicides, is that people talk about cultural differences. But even as a white reporter going after a black story after years of you know struggling with my bad Spanish and dealing with people who really are from other countries and really are from other – was a little like coming home. You're dealing with people who are – speaking in the same terms with the same political understanding and, the, and, and using the same cultural memes and uh, often very uh, poetically and very well. I think there's something about the, the euphemistic uh, requirements of the street that make people. And so so that term ghetto side was a resonant. It has particular resonance in L.A. because there's a, people say east side, west side for the two sides of South L.A. on each side of Main Street, which is where the old real estate covenant boundary was. You know, everybody who works in policing certainly knows that these different pockets that are hyper-segregated, where they're much blacker than other places where there is high crime, are very similar. 
and police will talk about the monotony of policing in those environments. It's all the same thing over and over, and and people on the street recognize that too. And so uh, the gang member I quote in my book who says ghetto side, what he means is all these places are the same strange thing in America. And I, you know, I'm a local news reporter. I really want to see and hear what I'm reporting. But I do imagine that there are possibly places in the Bay Area and in Chicago and in Detroit and in Washington, D.C. that would have recognizable characteristics. They, they can all have the same name, even though they're in different places. Well, I found it interesting. If ghetto side was spelled with a C, it would also be an interesting title. People brought that up to me later. I realized, I mean, it's all oral history. People are saying <laughs> things and I'm writing down. I possibly wrote it down wrong, but that wasn't the usage. Right. The usage is this is a place. Well, the, the other thing is something we talked about outside which uh, before we went on the air, which is that this ghetto, we're not talking tenements here. We're talking about a nice neighborhood. I hardly dare say this on a Bay Area radio station, but L.A. is the most beautiful place in the world. So just being in L.A. uh, is beautiful. And, of course, these are single-family detached homes for the most part. So there there aren't high-rises. You know, I mean, we all, as Californians, we get this. We have earthquakes right. and we have these low-rise neighborhoods. And actually, you know, compared to some other parts of the city, the sea breeze comes across there. So it's the, the weather is pretty nice. And where uh, Wally Tonelli lives is a particularly beautiful section, actually, of the city with a— 20s, 30s era stucco homes. We all know what those look like in California. They're lovely. The focus is on Skaggs, but it's also on Nathan Corey, a little bit on another detective, Marullo. I get the feeling LaBarber, who's probably retired by now? Just retiring. I I think his retirement party is at the end of the month this month. It's, It's interesting that they're not really burned out on it. Are you burned out on covering the the, uh, homicide beat? Well, I haven't covered it in some time. The Times actually moved me to other beats pretty much within a year of finishing the homicide report. And actually, I was an editor for a while. But, of course, by then I was immersed, immersed in the book. You're doing a lot of interviews, right? Too many. Were you there when the day that Brian Tonelli got killed? You know, I actually did cover that on the homicide report, but I did not cover it in any depth at all. And I was not at the scene. And the other, what is it, Devin Harris? Devon. Devon, I was. I may have been at the scene. I was definitely right in the the days following the murder. I met his mother almost immediately afterwards. I remember I was at the vigil. Uh, I was quite close to, I was probably closer and more, immediately around that case initially than, than Brian Tonelli. And that was Pritchett, right? Yes, and that was in Southeast Division. I did more of my work in Southeast Division. Um, Brian Tonelli was in 77th. So, Jill Leovi, what are you working on now? What beat are you on now? You know, I'm doing features uh, and sort of unspecified features for the Times. I think I'm going to be doing some profiles. The, the book has taken up vastly more time upon publication than I anticipated. This is going to be a difficult question, but in terms of writing the book, when you're looking back on the book, what do you think you could have emphasized more that you didn't? And also, how did writing the book change you as a reporter and as a person? Uh, Well, it kind of ruined me as a reporter. I'm still getting over that. Every time I try to write about something now, I instantly write 10,000 words, and and, uh, that became just extremely prolix. And... In terms of what I could have done differently, that is a hornet's nest, but I bet it is for any author. I um, And my uh, 
my editors at Random House, if they heard this, would be shaking their heads at this moment. I mean, obviously, I would change words and lines and phrases on every single page of that book. You never finish. You're just forced to turn it in. Right. And, you know, they, they take it out of your, your, uh, your white-knuckled grip. So there's a lot I would do to change the text of the book. In terms of what I would emphasize, I think that, uh, you know, I, I use the police because I think they're important. I think they are at the center of the story, and I think they're a great vehicle for people to get into this. In reality, what the victims' families and uh, assault victims are experiencing and what's happening to them is actually vastly more interesting and much deeper and much more revealing. It's extremely difficult to cover. You'll notice in Get Aside, even with Get Aside, even with something that was adjudicated, I'm very careful about names, and there's uh, certain details, actually, that I withheld from the book for safety reasons, and those can quickly become overwhelming when you're just dealing with the street side of it. But it's, uh, it's on the street and where the suffering happens that the real profundity of this story emerges, and they didn't totally capture that and, and get aside. You know, it's a little skims the surface of it a bit. And. Other than doing too much writing, how, has the book changed you on a uh, on some kind of emotional level, you think? Or was it there during the writing just simply because you were covering the homicides? Of course, I finished the book actually a year or two ago. That's the, the publishing is quite slow. I guess I had a thought that um, I was going to finish it and hit send and send it to my publisher, and then I wouldn't have to be obsessed about homicide every minute of the day, and I could put that part of my life behind me. It hasn't quite worked that way because it turns out in dribs and drabs there's continual demands all the way up to the publication of the book. And and afterwards, I have mixed feelings about it. This book took years and years of my life and made me kind of weird, I think. Um, you know, you don't want to talk to my family about some of these times where, where they just had to tell me to stop talking about it. But at the same time, Kelly Bates, who's in the book, said to me at the end of, uh, he's a homicide detective in Newton Division, who's a close friend and partner of Wally's. He said to me when I left the last interview with him, he said, you're so lucky you can say something. The rest of us have worked in the midst of this for years and years, and we can't say anything. We can't even put it into words. That really struck me because I do feel lucky not to have published the book, not to be interviewed by radio hosts, but simply to have been able to put some of what I saw into words and get it out of me is something that I'm very lucky to have been able to do, and it makes a big difference in how you process it. Uh, Wally Tonelli's still a cop? Uh, still a homicide detective, still regularly solving homicides for the LAPD. Uh, this is uh, People talk about John Skaggs being the hero of the book, but to me, the hero of the book is obviously Wally Tonelli. And Skaggs still? Skaggs has in several more years. He's actually in the book, as you see, he got uh, exiled to the west side of Los Angeles, but he's uh, been putting good work in there as a homicide supervisor. Chris Barling, who kind of disappears early on. Chris Barling is still a D3 in 77th Division, working hard. The barber just reti is retiring. The barber just Nathan retired. Corey. Another Nathan detective. Corey, last time I called him, he said, I'd love to talk to you, Jill, but I'm on a homicide scene right now, and I'm interviewing witnesses, and i got to go. And he is vindicated in this because, of course, I characterize him as emerging in the book. He is an incredible de detective for them now in South Bureau, one of their, their leading man, really, and, and very busy with case after case these days. And Marullo left. Is he back? Marullo is back, and he is fulfilling all his promise and is the other 
great leader. I, I think that I say in the book that he wasn't, as they wanted to call him, the little skags. But I think now he is, actually. He's back doing what he is best at, which is great for the city. And Devon Harris's mother... Barbara Pritchett. Did she now is still raising children? Yes, yeah, she, uh, as I say in the epilogue of the book, and this is another story that you don't hear a lot outside these places, but you hear a lot in them. Her sister died in complications of childbirth. And so she ended up with a newborn baby in her late 40s who she's raising. Starks and Davis, since the book, you have not had contact? Not since the book came out. They're both still in prison. And has anybody told you, having read the book, what they thought? Did you get any feedback from, say, Skaggs? <laughs> yeah, they, it's mostly either, uh, you know, the Tonelli said that they would not hear from me if it was okay, which I understand is extremely stressful for them and somewhat stressful for me knowing that. Skaggs, who I've talked to several times, has been very positive. He said it was accurate. He, though... Uh, referred at one point to it as the book about his case and then all the filler, meaning the years and years of sociological and historical research and the thesis and all the supporting material and everything I say in the book. To him, that was all filler. And the only thing that's interesting to him is the investigation, which that is... That sounds like him. <laughs> which is, I, like I say, I, um, I tried really not to make him a caricature, but he is somewhat of a caricature of himself in real life. So. And Corey, is he okay with the book? Who did I talk to from down there? I talked to his old partner. He said, Corey's been solving so many homicides, they've really got slammed that he hasn't had time to read it. But I would have to call and track him down anyway. You know, he will read it. He uh, He's quite a remarkable person. And I used to, tr- I was trying to do my book research and my embed research at the same time. So I'd bring a stack of books by legal scholars and historians and sociologists to my desk at 77. And Nathan Curry would take my books and just read them overnight. He would get thrown faster than me. He was interested in everything. You know, he read Randall Kennedy. I'm sure he will read my book when he is not going um, blazes on homicide investigations. And um, Barbara Pritchett, did she read it? Uh, I gave her a copy. I I have not heard from her. This is, uh, and I actually she's on my list to call. But but often you don't hear from people. It is uh, excruciatingly painful to revisit this. The man in the wheelchair. He is not service. I have not tried to hunt him down. I, um, of course, didn't use his name in the book because I want him to be safe and I want him, I want him to move on with his life. I hope he does. You do that because to give the name and to be a witness puts you in danger. Absolutely. Julio, the author of Ghetto Side, a true story of murder in America, which was released in trade paperback in October 2015. Recorded February 10, 2015 at KPFA Studios in Berkeley. To listen to more of these interviews, go to my website, bookwaves.com, or find the Bookwaves and Arts Waves podcasts at kpfa.org. Or you can subscribe to both podcasts via iTunes. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky podcast.